Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Helena Sane. Helena is a director at Breeze Yoga Limited, a club based in Beckenham in Kent, which offers a variety of life enhancing activities, including hot yoga, traditional yoga, tai chi and pilates. Um, Helena, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you so much and thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure having you. Now, first and foremost, the purpose of this podcast is to get an idea of your take on leadership. And that's really come under the test um, at the moment, um, hasn't it, with the whole COVID-19 situation and business leaders having to navigate their firms and companies through this crisis. Um, For somebody in your industry, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's literally shut everything right down. Uh, it's been really hard. Uh, I I won't pretend that I found it so easy, but uh, I think um, it's a great comfort knowing that uh, I'm not on my own in this situation and that everybody in the country is going through the same thing. So I keep coming back to that. Every time I have a wobble moment, I kind of come back to that thought and uh, I pull myself together. But obviously, uh, as... as um, as you probably know, all businesses in, in leisure and hospitality are, are sort of affected uh, really severely, even more so than businesses that are actually able to um, uh, continue trading to some extent or uh, continue with their operations uh, uh, either from home or sort of online. Um, however, uh, you know, there is always like a, a silver lining to everything. And, and I think the positive thing that I, I've um, uh, seen in the last sort of few weeks was that uh, all the yoga studios um, and pulled together and really sort of like uh, started thinking creatively and started uh, sort of um, uh, uh, offering things online uh, so that we can actually uh, still continue supporting our clients through this difficult time, and um, and it's been really uh, very interesting, very exciting. I mean, lots of new technologies to get to grips with, um, but I, I find that our customers are really, really grateful. We've had incredible feedback, and um, it's just you know really nice to see that people are you know kind of pull together and start sort of like. Um, accept new reality reality very very quickly so that is kind of you know a positive thing to take out of all of this Mm, certainly and and, um, it's often said as well that um, times of difficulty and crisis like this do bring out the best in people and have you seen that as a leader within your own team as well as your clients totally totally I, i mean i'm absolutely uh, overwhelmed with the uh, amount of support that we received and uh, all the team members really stepped up um, and uh, you are right times like this you see the worst and the best and I'd like to focus on the best in people um, but you know it, it, it's very interesting you know that um, uh, you, you, you really kind of um, suddenly everything is sort of stripped bare and, 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 and it's it, 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 there are some sort of incredibly precious moments to be had in these times. And as I said, I would rather focus on those than, than sort of, um, than sort of the maybe a slightly more negative aspects of the situation. But 
I, I think people keep saying that nothing will be the same after this, and I, I think it's a really fair, fair assessment because um, it, I, we will come out of this stronger. I'm sure about that. But also, you know, like the, all the uh, sort of like, um, uh, it, it. I think there will be much more clarity, and 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 uh, uh, people will will be closer as a result of this. I, I feel. I I I have. Um, I've already witnessed our community getting stronger and more supportive of each other as a result of this. Absolutely. And I think that's incredibly important to, uh, to take forward as well. And um, it is very much, um, as people do say, it is changing times and it is very much unprecedented times as well. Um, would you say earlier um, in your career, um, Helena, um, that you'd ever had to deal with challenges like you're having to deal with now? Or is this very much uncharted territory for you? Um, it, I'd say it is very much uncharted territory for me because uh, prior to having uh, running my own business, I, I, I actually worked in the city in finance, and um, it, uh, I, I was uh, managing teams uh, back then as well. And obviously, they, you know, I, I had uh, challenges at the time as well. However, I, I guess um, the, 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 the the bug never stopped with me before. I never had quite so many people reliant on, on, on me and, um, and 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 the business as, as now uh, and and I think that's what makes it so much harder because I, I felt that I, I, I as soon as we started I, I I felt this huge responsibility that I had to do the right thing by the people because I could see that you know they, as you'll appreciate in leisure and hospitality you have loads of people who are not on very high income anyway and when something like this happens you just sort of think wow how are they going to be able to afford uh, to to go unpaid or to go on less money when they're already kind of like on on, um, fairly low wages so um, I I think that was the first kind of like feeling I had what what am I going to do I have to kind of make the ends meet I have to survive this and I have to ensure that the business will survive but I also need to support my people and um, and sort of you I was desperately trying to sort of like uh, balance the book so to say and it's hard it's really really hard Um, and what what I kind of decided was that the open communication is is the best best route so uh, I made sure that as soon as as, as the crisis started I, I, I basically communicated with all the staff and I was really I tried to be really open I tried to say okay you know I'm go- we, we are entitled to this we are not entitled to that we'll just kind of have to do the best we can and I, I think that that really uh, helped because um, I think I think as long as people think that you are transparent and you are open, um, they 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 trust you, and 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 that that really um, uh, I feel I, I, that you know it really helped. It's really interesting uh, because I do agree with you um, in the sense that communication, effective communication, especially transparency, trust is hugely important between a leader and their respective team. But you mentioned there as well that you do uh, come from a finance background as well. Um, When you make that transition into the sort of leisure and hospitality sector, did you have to really change that style of leadership or did that kind of transfer over quite easily? Um. 
Definitely, yes. However, I remember even back in my uh, old days, I was always sort of like um, um, told that perhaps my sort of uh, style of, well, uh, uh, maybe not leadership, but management was slightly kind of uh, softer because I always kind of believed in in um, uh, a, a sort of uh, a carrot rather than a stick approach. So I, I would, I, 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 um, I would involve people and in, empower people, and and I uh, and I think that for me uh, that, that that kind of really worked well, and um, I, I think very soon my my uh, superiors realized that my teams were uh, prospering and, and doing really well, and people were actually staying in their jobs, which wasn't always the case with other regions. So, but in the regions that I, in the region that I managed. Uh, we had um, a kind of really good, um, a very low staff turnover. Uh, so I, I have taken some of those, that, that approach into into my new role. Uh, however, you are right; it is kind of like uh, um, it's it, 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 it's it's kind of harder because it's in the city, I guess, in the finance world, the limits were very very clear, and um, and whereas. Uh, I, I'm now kind of working with people who are uh, slightly, they have slightly different approach to life and they're not kind of perhaps that um, kind of, it's not, not such a regimented uh, in, environment. So it's, it's harder navigating that because you really need to adjust your approach to different different individuals you, you come across. Um, and so um, uh, it, it you kind of learn as you go along, I suppose. But I have de- definitely taken uh, some things from from my um, past jobs, and 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 I, I think that that was re- really helpful. I think what that does highlight there, Helena, is the importance of adaptability um, as a leader, and especially, um, of course, in transferring from one sector to another. Um, but also, it's quite interesting that you did take a softer approach um, during, of course, your years in the city, because quite often there is this perception of the finance sector of being quite corporate and quite cutthroat. But there are approaches which are that little bit softer and much more people orientated, still very much prevalent there, which is quite interesting to see. Um We've talked a lot there about your style of leadership there, Helena, being much more people orientated, being much softer in a way. But what would you say have been some of the influences behind that style that you've developed? Um, I think it was definitely my mother. My mother was uh, an entrepreneur and uh, she was a woman in, in a men's world, really. Uh, so back in the uh, 60s, 70s. Uh, she was an electrical engineer, so uh, she worked in, in, in entirely, almost entirely with men. And then she went on to set up her own business, and she was really quite successful in that. Um, but uh, she had this incredible skill to uh, engage people and to really um, get the best out of them. And, and But at the same time, she was extremely extremely assertive and firm, probably much firmer than me. But uh, she would she also had this skill of 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 um, kind of getting people to trust her and getting um, the absolute best behavior out of them. So uh, I, I, I was as a child, I was sort of really in awe of my mom because I I just couldn't understand how she was um, uh, 
so sort of successful in 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 in, in engaging with people and, and and getting them to to work together towards the kind of common goal. And um, there are times now when I actually think back to to to. to to, to, to those days and I think oh I actually I can recognize more and more of uh, my mum's uh, behavior in, in myself and and, and, and it's, it's actually quite um, um, I, I, I'm, I'm quite pleased whenever I think oh you know I think she would have she would have done this or she would have been proud of me uh, so that's that's where my uh, approach comes from I, I'd say. I think that's a very interesting example there, Helene, that you mentioned uh, your mother, because when we do think of um, leaders, um, we're tempted to often think of people who are in the public eye, such as uh, politicians, such as sports personalities, such as celebrities. But it is important to remember that um, good leaders um, can quite often be people who are parents, people who just inspire people on a much sort of less prominent level. It's important to remember that, isn't it? That's right. Yes, and uh, and uh, I, I think um, what what what's really important is to sort of ha- kind of have that courage of conviction, and uh, and that's really where it all stems from. Uh, so for for me, it you know kind of believing in 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 myself and and my team and and in the vision that we share together is really what what um, what's kind of the foundation of of of, of everything. Um, and uh, and similarly, and you know, you mentioned sort of like uh, leaders and people in the public eye. I, I find it that it's those that have that kind of vision um, and um, and that have the, 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 the courage to sort of take it through, but also kind of a little bit of softness as well, because you know, let us not forget if you are kind of like too. Um, uh, if you are on on one path and you are too narrow minded and you are not actually uh, open minded enough to listen to other people and take their views on board, then you know that probably won't serve you in the long run, as as we do see um, uh, daily. So I, I think it's important. It's almost like a very fine balancing act in my mind. So having um, having that. Um, courage of conviction, having the vision, but also being adaptable, being um, uh, open-minded and being transparent. You know, I think it's really important because I think people respond really well to honesty. Uh, And uh, I I try to be as honest as I possibly can because I think at least if I'm honest, then people will actually, people will be, on board, they will they will trust me. They will sort of think, well, yes, we can see her point, uh, you know. And 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 I, I think that's really uh, the approach that I've taken during this crisis as well. And I can completely see where you're coming from in taking that approach um, as well, Helena. And um, before I do let you go today, if we do focus on that vision um, that you have um, um, before we um, go forward. Um, do tell me a little bit about what you envision for the next 12 months for yourself and for Breeze Yoga and what you really hope to achieve in that time, particularly in navigating the pandemic and then beyond the other side of it as well. Oh, this is such a hard question because we are obviously uh, living through such uncertain times and I wake up daily to read headlines about, you know, social distancing to go on for for indefinitely for a year until the vaccine is found. And 
it's really hard for uh, for businesses that are in leisure or hospitality to sort of like um, envisage how this will kind of <laughs> how how we can achieve this whilst um, um, uh, whilst continuing to to run the business because obviously. Um, uh, in sort of places such as yoga studios, people are quite close together. So it would be really, really difficult to kind of achieve a high degree of social distancing. Uh, We were also hoping to uh, launch um, treatments just before we we close down and sort of thinking about social distancing whilst you're actually giving somebody uh, a holistic treatment or a massage is (laughs) impossible. So I, I, I really, uh, I think, as I said before, we are forced to think creatively and that is helping, but I, I don't think it's going to be our solution in terms of sort of like a financial, financial stability. Uh, what we are doing at the moment with online offering is really only going as far as to keep the community ticking to ensure that uh, people are kind of remaining sane during like a lockdown, that they get time for themselves, that they remain physically active. Um, but I don't think that is actually going to, to sustain us as a business. So I, I, I'm not really sure that um, I, I'm just taking each day as it comes. I'm sure that you know solution will present itself, but I, I, I'm not able to tell you now how uh, you know how I see the business going in the next year. I mean, we'll just have to listen to government advice and and do the best we can. Um, and I, I'm I'm sure you know it, it will kind of you know some answers will present themselves as I said earlier. Yes, let's certainly hope so. And um, I think what might actually be really beneficial for the listeners, Helena, is if in the next few months when we start seeing the fog lifting a little bit, we actually have you back on the programme, revisit this and just have a catch up to see how the business is doing and how some of those hopes are being borne out. But for now, I have to say it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the programme for today. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to talk. It's been an absolute pleasure, Helena. Thank you again so much. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 after being anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough after serving as the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough MP for 28 years. I hope you enjoyed listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett welcome. Thank you very much it's very good to be with you. Um, Well of course uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19 which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, 
uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will, in some ways, be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the 
public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S., and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been. For, 
all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, uh, great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting 
wide enough advice were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and 
anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, 
adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want 
as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.